It's 2025, and U.S. forces are encamped on the outskirts of a dense rainforest. A team of geospatial engineers is studying maps that analyze the surrounding terrain as they plan a troop movement that must keep the unit concealed. Suddenly, their progress is halted. A commander bursts into the room and tells them the situation is fluid. The area of interest has shifted significantly, and she needs a new plan in two hours. It's a complicated task. The new area is unfamiliar, and there is no existing map that details where its tree canopy is thick enough to cover the troops, where its tree trunks are spaced far enough apart to support the maneuver, or where it contains hidden wetlands that should be avoided. And producing this terrain analysis using traditional methods could take a full day's work. Instead, the engineers upload the latest satellite imagery into a suite of enhanced terrain processing tools developed by the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Within minutes, they have the land cover map they need. Possessing a detailed understanding of the nearby terrain and forest cover, the engineers can quickly get back to work on producing a revised route for the maneuver to enable mission success. Soldiers are often forced to operate using outdated geospatial data that may not accurately represent current ground conditions. However, processing newer overhead imagery and using it to create terrain analysis products is a lengthy and complicated process. This can be a problem when trying to find the best possible routes for troop maneuvers or when selecting helicopter landing zones. For example, a grove of trees may no longer be present. What was once agricultural land may now be overgrown or a dry plain may have been overtaken by a flood. Erdic's enhanced terrain processing effort is developing a series of tools to solve this problem. These tools allow Army geospatial engineers to rapidly process new remotely sensed imagery from a variety of sources and use it to analyze current terrain conditions. Within minutes, they can produce a land cover classification map that highlights the location of various features, such as vegetation, evergreen or deciduous trees, wetlands, farms, and built-up areas. Other tools rapidly identify the location of forests and water, tree density and crown diameter, terrain ruggedness and optimal mobility corridors, among many other features. I'm Chris Kiefer, and with Megan Holland, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guest today is Nikki Wayant, research geographer at Erdic's Geospatial Research Laboratory and task lead for the Enhanced Terrain Processing Effort. We will talk with Nikki about how Erdic is giving the warfighter superior situational awareness and knowledge of the operational environment, increasing mission effectiveness and improving warfighter safety. Hey Nikki, how are you today? Thanks for joining the podcast. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Can you start by explaining the problem you all are trying to solve? Why is existing geospatial data so outdated? And why is that significant? Those are all very excellent questions. Creating foundational geospatial data, such as land cover maps, takes time. Anywhere from a few hours to a few days, depending on which technique you're using, what you're trying to produce, and the size of your area of interest. If there isn't time to create these products, soldiers will utilize already created geospatial products, such as BizNav, which is a global land cover product. In order to create a global land cover product, you have to have samples from all across the world 
about what is actually on the ground. And that can take a really, really long time to generate and to validate to make sure that it's accurate enough to use. Once you have that made, we tend to not update those global products for years at a time. However, things can change over just a course of the few months or over the course of a year. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we have up-to-date geospatial data, that we can take a more recent satellite image and turn it into a land cover map or a binary map or a digital elevation model, because then we have a more accurate representation of what's actually going on on the ground. And just building off that too, I mean, for people that aren't as familiar with this space, how are these maps used and why is it so important that the warfighters have this information? That's a good question. And I often, I work within the geospatial community, so I sometimes forget how much I need to explain to someone who isn't living with maps every single (laughs) hour of their day. It's very important. So there's really two halves to ETP. The first half is creating that foundational geospatial data, creating our binary maps, processing the raw imagery, creating digital elevation models or land cover maps. And then the second half is using that information. That's what we call our terrain analytics. So using that geospatial data to produce a cross-country mobility map. So that's telling you where it's going to be the fastest for you to get with a certain type of vehicle or producing a helicopter landing zone. Where can you actually land a helicopter or line of sight? Where are you going to be actually be able to see where you're going or where you need to be able to have eyes on where the enemy are or where you're going to have cover and concealment? Where is it safe for you to be walking where you're not going to be seen by overhead imagery or airplanes? All of that geospatial information that we're creating goes into those terrain analysis tools, whether that be the tools that we've created or any type of terrain analysis that a geospatial engineer is trying to complete. You mentioned a binary map. Can you explain what that is? Yes. A binary map is very powerful for the fact that it is so simple. So, for example, if you have an image over an orchard area, And you want to know which pixels are forest and which pixels are not. Very quickly, our tool can give you an image that is just black and white or green and black. And it's going to tell you exactly which pixels are forest. And what's nice about this tool is that it's sensor agnostic so that you can use it for pretty much any type of satellite image that you give it as long as it has a red and near infrared bands. And that means that we can have it be very, very high resolution. Um, I think the the highest resolution we've had is two meters. And when you think about the fact that BizNav, the global land cover product that a lot of geospatial engineers use is 30 meters, the two meters really helps step up the game for the geospatial engineers as they figure out where they can do routing, where people may be trying to hide from aerial viewpoint or where they could hide. It really ups the game for understanding what is on the ground. Other binary map tools that we have is our water mapping tool. So that is allows us to really easily see where water is and where it's not. And the difference between this binary maps and our land cover maps is binary maps only need one image to create, which means it can be as up-to-date as possible. All of our land cover maps, you have to have both a winter image and a summer image so that we can capture 
time periods in the year where you have leaves on the tree yeah. and time periods of the year where you don't have leaves on the tree yeah. or where you have more water or where you don't. But your binary maps give you that image in time at this exact moment. Mm -hmm. So we can understand right at this moment where our built-up areas are or where the bare soil is or where the forest is and where the water is. And that can be really useful if we're working right after a flood event or if you're having tides going in and out. It gives you a better idea of what's happening on the ground at that particular moment. One more thing just to kind of bring this home and, and explain the kind of work y'all are doing. I mean, it's maps, but really when you're talking about terrain analysis, it's a lot more detailed the information that they need to come up with routes. Things like whether or not there were trees. Trees may matter if you need to conceal an operation or like you said, if you're trying to find someone that's hidden, maybe you need to know whether there's water so you can avoid water or go to water. I mean. I guess it's more than just here is a map of the area, but you're looking at specific features that matter more. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the crux of this effort. Is that right? It is. And I think people who are not involved in geography would probably be shocked by the amount of science that goes behind the creation of maps that we see. A lot of it is kind of based in physics. It's based on the electromagnetic spectrum. Hmm and what the different wavelengths are. And we're able to combine those wavelengths to get new and different types of information about what's happening on the ground. And when you talked about exploiting some of those features on a map, that's also more complicated than you might think. And one of the things I think makes ETP so successful is the diversity that we have in terms of skill sets. We have geographers, we have computer scientists, we have physicists, we have foresters. So we're able to combine all of the knowledge and the science behind all of those disciplines together to create this, these products. And additionally, we also work with the Army Geospatial Center's military support team, MST. And those are soldiers that have been in the field. They're all geospatial engineers. They all have a lot of experience. And so we work with them to make sure that we're producing tools that make products that they could actually be using. So in terms of both our academic discipline and then also in our experience, especially working with the military support team, that I believe has really led to our success in being able to create these tools that are going to be used by the soldiers in the future. Sure. Nikki, how did geospatial engineers produce these terrain analysis products in the past? A lot of the times they were producing them by hand. It was a very manual process. For example, in our image preprocessing toolkit, we have the ability to orthorectify an image automatically. So what that's doing is taking an image that has no geospatial information associated with it and putting it on a map automatically. That's done within seconds. Hmm. If a geospatial engineer were to do this before our tool, they would have to go and hand draw and find areas on a base map that match the imagery and draw connection points between the two and then transpose it onto the map or transform it and check to see if it was accurate and do that over and over again until it was correct. And that could take one to two hours, whereas ours is done within five seconds. So it's saving a lot of time. Wow. wow, yeah. And obviously it's much faster. How does the accuracy compare to previous methods? 
were actually more accurate. For example, I talk a lot about BizNav. That's the very standard global land cover that geospatial engineers use when they're creating terrain analysis products. That has a spatial resolution of about 30 meters. The last time it was updated, I believe, was either five or eight years ago, depending on the part of the world. And it has an accuracy of approximately 75%. Our land cover maps have an accuracy of 85% or higher. The same thing with a lot of our binary maps, we're getting accuracy of at least 90%. So not only are we faster and have higher spatial resolution, we also have higher accuracy. So you can trust what you're seeing more than you could with the old foundational geospatial data. Tell us more about why this matters and, and the importance of it. I mean, the scenario we had at the top talks about a scenario in which trying to come up with plans and the situation changes and all of a sudden they need to look at a location that they don't really have uh, these detailed maps for. And instead of taking you know a day to put it together, now they can do it in, in a matter of hours and you know, get the plans out you know more quickly, if you said mm-hmm. more accurately. I mean, is that ki- the kind of scenario that you all are looking at? And tell us about some of the areas other areas where this really has an impact? Most definitely. You talked about in the past, if people had a couple of days to put something out. The fact of the matter is, currently the geospatial engineer does not have the days that they would need to create a very well thought out geospatial product. Their commanders don't always understand the amount of time that it takes. So they're like, I need this in 30 minutes. And they're just doing the best they can with the tools they have. And it's not always the most accurate. And so they have to give it with a lot of caveats. Or it does take them several days to walk through the process to create all of these products. Now they can do them so much quicker and they can trust them more. It also matters because when they're using this outdated information, It makes a difference as you go to do your cross-country mobility or you're driving your tank around somewhere and all of a sudden there's this forest of trees or you think you can drive across this part of land that you didn't realize that there had been a rainstorm two weeks ago and based on the soil type, that soil is still going to be wet. So all of a sudden your Humvee sinks and it's not going to drive. So being able to have that more up-to-date information means it's more likely for a mission to be able to be completed, and it also allows us to be able to plan a mission faster and more accurately, making sure that it'll be completed, but also helping to keep our soldiers safe. Can you talk a little about some of the products that are available? Oh, I could. I could go on for a very long time about some of the products that are available. We have a toolkit called Image Preprocessing, and there's a plethora of tools within there. Image Preprocessing, what it does is it's taking raw satellite imagery. A lot of times when you're getting data from satellites, if you get it straight from the vendor, it's already been processed. But if it hasn't been, that means you can't really create a land cover map that you trust. So our Image Preprocessing Toolkit takes care of all of that. It does orthorectification, radiometric calibration, atmospheric correction. They also can do things like pan sharpening to make it so things look sharper and you can get a better idea. We also, as I was saying, have the capability to do binary map products. So those are creating really quick 
one zero maps. So we have forest cover index, a water mapping tool. We will soon be testing our built up areas tool that we had originally been calling that an urban area, but after talking with the geospatial engineers learned that it's more of a built up area rather than saying urban and then bare soil. We also have a land cover classification tool that goes for the entire world. So you can, as long as you have a summer and a winter image over an area of a Sentinel-2 satellite, you'll be able to get a fairly accurate land cover map. We're also expanding our land cover tools, and we'll soon be testing them within the first or second quarter of next year where we can use Worldview, which has a much higher spatial resolution of about three meters, I believe, and then also something that does more feature extraction using convolutional neural networks and image segmentation that's able to take just a basic red, blue, green image, doesn't necessarily have to have multispectral information, and can pull out individual buildings and roads. So we're really expanding upon there and trying to drive the science. We can also do things with LIDAR products where we're trying to identify brake lines. We've already tested that tool and we'll be transitioning it soon. Brake lines are little micro terrains. So we're thinking about scree when you're hiking, ditches, fence line. can also do things with tree canopies and being able to understand where we're seeing these changes helps us when we do terrain analysis, like with our routing. And then we also have tree stem spacing. We're still working on that one. It's a very hard problem. But tree stem spacing, as we try to figure out what is the density of trees in an area, what's the space from one tree to another, how wide are the trees? And that also makes a big difference for routing as, you know, can you, you can walk troops through it? Can you drive troops through it? That's one of our more science driven. Those are all of the geospatial products that then go into our terrain analysis products. And we have a wide variety of those from different types of routing, dismounted routing, mounted routing, that being the difference between walking on foot or being in a vehicle, cost distance, how long is it going to take you to get from point A to point B, helicopter landing zone, drop zone suitability, cover and concealment, line of sight, view shed. And then we've also done some stuff with tents. I could really go on and on. I think I could talk all day. So I'm going to stop there. I'm very passionate and very proud of all the stuff that the team has produced. And the work is really amazing. So in addition to providing information that's updated and more accurate, you're also able to analyze data in new ways that weren't previously available. Is that what you're saying? People could analyze this data before. There have been other toolkits available that have allowed soldiers to do things like routing. Our tools are faster and we work more closely with the soldier to develop those terrain analysis tools. And our input into those particular tools is higher quality. For example, some we are utilizing something called GeoWatch that was also an Erdic product that does stuff with soil moisture and soil strength, we are bringing that information and using that within all of our routing capabilities. Whereas before, with a lot of different terrain analysis, for soil moisture, they would just kind of make a guess. Um, And the default was just, it's half wet. There wasn't as much information being put into everything. Additionally, we can work with a variety of different inputs 
So if you have a higher resolution data set or a higher resolution land cover map, you can put that in to our terrain analysis tools. So what we've really done is taken terrain analysis and made it better, more accurate and faster. You mentioned working with soldiers. How are these tools made available to soldiers? That's an excellent question. These tools aren't yet available to soldiers, but they probably will be starting in either FY24 or 25. They'll be available to all geospatial engineers. Right now, we work very closely with the Army Geospatial Center's Military Support Team, or MST. I was talking about them earlier. These are all individuals who are 12 Yankees, or they are 125 Deltas. A 125 Delta is a chief warrant officer. So that is someone who has decades of experience with working with geospatial data. And what we've come to find out is working with these geospatial engineers, working with these soldiers is key to success for developing tools for them. No one on ETP has any military experience. We've never been in the field like the soldiers have. And so what we like to do is as we're developing a tool, we will have a conversation with the soldiers about, hey, this is what we're wanting to do. Would this be useful to you? Or say, for example, we're currently developing a cover and concealment tool. That process is done by hand right now by a geospatial engineer, and we are automating that process. So we had about an hour, hour and a half discussion with the geospatial engineer and asking them, what kind of data do you use? How do you go about doing it? If I have this input data and I spit this out, is this the type of product that you're wanting? Mm -hmm. And really getting down into the nitty gritty of that. And then we'll go back and code it. And when we're ready, we'll test it with the military support team. We do that in something called the Army Geospatial Enterprise Node that is currently housed at AGC. The node is a wonderful place to experiment within ERDIC. It allows us to test our tools out on the actual systems and the actual hardware that the soldiers will be using. So they are using the type of computer hardware and the software that they would be using in the field and they're testing our tools on it. We always make sure we have a researcher there with them and we spend the two to three hours in the node with them going through the tools and getting feedback. And sometimes we have to go back to the drawing board and come back with new changes to the tools based on the feedback. So I think that's one of the reasons our tools are so accurate and so easy to use. It's because of our relationship with the military support team. Yeah, I can imagine. In, in addition to them making the tools you're developing better, are there also many examples of them maybe giving you ideas for new tools? Like, hey, it would be really nice if we could have X and kind of starting the process that way? Oh, most definitely. The best example I can think of is the tree stem spacing tool. We weren't even thinking of that as being something that was important. And they came to us and said, hey, this is a real problem for us as we're doing our routing. Do you think you can do it? Cool. So, yeah, the, the relationship is very beneficial. And that's where I, and we talked a little bit earlier about new tools. But I mean, is that even though some of these analyses were available before, are you all really being able to offer a lot of new, you know, when you combine this information and, and that information and providing a lot of data that really wasn't readily available? I know you've talked about using 
neural networks and machine learning and so forth. Is there much of that new information that really wasn't available when, when these maps were just being done by hand? Yes. Yes, most definitely. Such as the tree stem spacing mm-hmm. or being able to, like I was saying, with one of our deep learning tools, being able to automatically pull out buildings and roads. That's a brand new tool because the soldiers were doing that by hand, drawing the individual squares and lines on the computer. So, yes. Yeah. Very much so. Can you talk about the team and its various strengths? As I was saying before, one of the big strengths of the core ETP group, I think, is our academic diversity. We have computer scientists, mathematicians, geographers, foresters, people who are really good at understanding spectral science, people who are really good at coding, people who are really good at statistics. And this project has really combined everyone's strengths together. And I'm very proud of what they were able to do. It's so fun to sit in on sprint meetings. Those are things that we hold every month to talk about what we want to accomplish. And I love the respect that everyone has for each other on the teams. And it's a lot of fun to listen to them. I don't want to say argue, but converse about how they should solve this problem. And to hear them say, oh, that's a good idea. What if we tweak it this way? And to hear them building upon ideas or saying, I understand why you would go there. Here's why I don't think that. And hearing them listen to each other. So beyond just our academic talents and our technical paralysis, I think the way that we've come together as a team is a large reason why why we're so successful is because we really respect those technical differences and appreciate them. I can't, we would be in trouble if we lost anyone on the team because everyone is so intrinsic to every product that we produce. So you make each other better. Yeah, yeah, we make each other better. That's awesome. Backing up a little bit, when we talk about you know, a scenario as we had in the opening, where a new map is needed, where new data is needed pretty instantly, what kind of sensors and data sources are your tools able to work with to produce these terrain analyses? It really depends on which tool you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Our image preprocessing tool is fairly sensor agnostic. That means you can pretty much get it any type of satellite image and, and probably some drone imagery as well. Same thing with our forest cover tool, our binary forest tool, as long as the multispectral data has near infrared and red bands, you will be able to run it. Other tools such as the land cover classification tool requires that you have Sentinel-2. Mm-hmm. In future projects, one which will be starting in FY28. We'll be trying to make all of our tools sensor agnostic, which means that they'll work with any type of sensor, any type of satellite, any type of UAS data. That's a big lift, which is why we're waiting a little bit. This project currently ends in FY23 and we begin our next tasks. So I'm having us wait a little bit to see where technology is at. And then we'll probably use various aspects of machine learning to try to make these tools sensor agnostic in the future. Who are the partners that you're working with? We work with MST, Military Support Team, very, very closely. 
every week or every other couple of weeks. We talk to them about the types of tools we're, that we're working on. We invite them to our monthly meetings, which really go deep into the science. And then, of course, they, they test our tools. I try to make sure that we brief and communicate information about these tools to the geospatial engineering community as much as possible, since these tools will be going out and fielded to them within the next couple of years. I want them to be familiar with the concepts of the tools before they start being trained on them. Also, this May, we will be participating in a training exercise at Fort Leonard Wood called MISPIX, where we will actually be having a formal testing event with geospatial engineers there. Nikki, how did this effort get started? How did ERDIC come to be involved with this? And, and then how did you come to be involved with it? The main person that we can give credit to for starting this project is Dr. Jean Nelson. She works at GRL and is the program manager for TGIP, Tactical Geospatial Information Capabilities, that ETP falls under. She got funding for this. They call it POMing. I forget mm. what POM stands for, but she POMed for this starting in FY18. She worked very closely with GRL's. Office of the Technical Director, specifically Mike Campbell, and also worked with the technical lead for ETP, Sean Griffin, to really dive deep into the types of questions and problems that the geospatial engineers were facing and identifying the types of problems that they wanted to have solved. So the credit for the development of this project really goes to Dr. Nelson. When this project started in FY20 and fiscal year 2020, and I just got done leading a project that was studying vector-borne diseases, which most of the people from that project were transitioning on to ETP. I had experience leading a large group with a variety of backgrounds, so I got asked to lead ETP, and things have really gone from there. And I'm really proud of how we started from, from nothing and have built to where we are today. You're now using machine learning and deep learning neural networks. So this effort has clearly evolved. Can you talk a little bit about that? So here's a, a little fact that you might not know is that deep learning is machine learning. It's a, it's a separate little subpart of machine learning. Ah, I huh. always find that very, very interesting. Yes, we use machine learning for our land cover classification maps. At first, we were using support vector machines, and now we're using something called random forests to be able to do the OCONUS maps. We're also using deep learning as we try to expand to other sensors for the land cover classification maps. For example, we're using Worldview 3, which has a much, much higher resolution than Sentinel 2. We go from 20 meters all the way down to 3 meters. So we're using deep learning there to be able to understand the land covers on, on the ground. We're also using something called convolutional neural networks. That is a machine learning aspect that is all about training on images. So being able to recognize things in images, this is how we're pulling out buildings and roads automatically. We're doing that in conjunction with image segmentation. So being able to pull out specific parts of an image. Uh, you can think of it as feature extraction, being able to automatically pull out those buildings and roads. So we're really, yeah, 
we're trying to take advantage of all of the progress that's being made in other disciplines such as computer science and use that to help solve some of the geographic problems that we face today. Talk about the future. You kind of hinted at it a little bit earlier that one phase is kind of coming to the end and the next phase coming up. What does the future look like for this effort? Yes, we have two follow-on projects. The first one will start in fiscal year 2024. That project is called Geospatial Analytics and Prediction, or GAP. The focus of this particular task is about time series, or spatial-temporal time series, being able to understand how the terrain changes over time. So there's three separate tasks in there. The first is spatial and temporal analysis of the terrain, where we are trying to be able to identify anomalies within the time series. So say, for example, you're looking at a forested area, you understand when the winter comes that there's no leaves, and you understand that in the summer there's leaves. Well, all of a sudden, you might discover that there's no leaves in this one particular portion of the forest in the summertime, and that's very odd. And so that will allow you to kind of dig in to figure out what's going on there. Is that where a camp has been set up? Sometimes terrorist groups will start farming a particular area to help grow food for their organization. So being able to identify those anomalies is very important. We also want to be working with something that we're calling terrain and scenario forecasting. So that's being able to understand how the changes in the terrain affect not only our mission planning, but just what we can expect as we move forward. How will weather be affecting helicopter landing zone if we know there's going to be a rainstorm? Or for example, some cities really experience a growth in population during the non-harvest periods or periods where crops are not being grown and then that population disperses and goes back out to rural areas during other parts of the year when they're planting or harvesting food. And then last but not least, we'll be working with something that we're calling cross-scale analysis. When you're working with remotely sensed data, there's always this fine balance. If you have a high spatial resolution, you usually have very coarse temporal resolution. Those satellites haven't been around as long, so you can't get as much of a time series. However, Satellites that have coarser spatial resolution, such as MODIS, will have a more rich time series data. So if we can combine that information together, we can produce something really powerful. The task that will begin after GAP is called, and this will be starting in um, FY28, is called the Multimodal Fusion and Sensor Agnostic Tools. I couldn't think of a cool acronym. So people on the team are calling it Umstet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mouthful. Yeah, we'll see if we can come up with a better name. But our goal there is twofold. One is to make all of our ETP tools sensor agnostic. So that means they can be used with drone or any type of satellite imagery. And then also multimodal fusion. When I talk about multimodal fusion, right now within ETP, we're just we're using multispectral imagery. There are other types of imagery that people use, such as radar or SAR. Those are microwaves. Mm -hmm. They're also using thermo. And there's also something called hyperspectral imagery, where it's little tiny slices of the spectrum where we can gain even more detailed information about our region of interest. 
all of those different products haven't really been combined together into an actionable product that can be used by the geospatial engineer. So we would like to be able to do research where we can find different ways to bring those different types of information together. For example, we use a lot of multispectral imagery to be able to do land cover classification or to do forest cover, to tell where there's forest cover, to determine what the soil is like underneath there. However, when you have a lot of tree cover, say in the rainforest, you can't look underneath the trees or you can't look through clouds. Mm -hmm. Something like microwaves or radar can penetrate those clouds, can penetrate dense tree cover to look at what's actually on the ground underneath it. So we want to be able to combine all of that good information together to see if we can make an even better product. Sure. Lots ahead, lots of uh lots of exciting yes. challenges to tackle. We're we're very excited and we've got a lot of fun work ahead of us. Well thanks Nikki. Thanks for joining us. And this is really just such a fascinating subject area and it's just, you know, interesting to see as you said how it's evolved through the years and particularly when you start talking about the future and all the possibilities that are there. And and I look forward to seeing where it goes as you all continue to work on this problem. Thank you for having me. And I'm also excited to see what the future holds for us and to see what kind of stuff we're able to produce. As you said, this is directly about warfighter safety. So I know it's a rewarding problem to be tackling. Yes, it is. Enhanced terrain processing tools allow soldiers to work with the best available overhead imagery, giving them rapid access to updated terrain analyses. Processes that once took hours can now be completed in seconds or minutes with higher accuracy rates and reduced cognitive burden. By using machine learning and deep learning neural networks, these automated and semi-automated tools also combine information in new ways to provide terrain information that wasn't previously available. And the tools will continue to improve as researchers respond to soldier input and evolving needs and as future computational advances open new possibilities. The Power of Arctic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic podcast in all major podcast players. Please subscribe and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Visit powerofurticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofurticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today. We'll see you next time.